Hello everyone, this is Dom with the Logos Project. It's here, part 6 of the Mary series. Unfortunately, I don't cover nominalism in this one, but I promise I will eventually. Enjoy. Hello everyone, this is Dom with the Logos Project, and... I am currently writing a paper for school on the beginning of Luke's Gospel. I am writing about the comparison between the announcement of John the Baptist's birth and the birth of Jesus. And so I figured, um, since I'm doing research for the paper, I've been reading John Paul II's Redemptoris Mater, right, the mother of the Redeemer in Latin. And so I figured I'd go ahead and read the beginning of the encyclical, and offer some comments on it, and I might as well make this part six of the Mary series, which I intend to continue. Okay, so, the encyclical begins, The Mother of the Redeemer has a precise place in the plan of salvation. And then he goes on to quote Galatians. For, quote, When the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, in these words, Paul paints a beautiful and very interesting tapestry where several elements come together that refer to family dynamics. Right, and especially as we'll see, the relationship between covenant and the family kinship that it establishes. So the son of the father, born of a woman, redeeming us and establishing us as adoptive sons of the father through the gift of the spirit. So John Paul continues, with these words of the Apostle Paul, which the Second Vatican Council takes up at the beginning of its treatment of the Blessed Virgin Mary, I too wish to begin my reflection on the role of Mary in the mystery of Christ and on her active and exemplary presence in the life of the Church. So notice the wording here. I too wish to begin my reflection on the role of Mary in the mystery of Christ. Throughout its teaching, for 2,000 years, the church has always approached the mystery of Mary in this manner. John Paul says, I wish to begin my reflection on the role of Mary in the mystery of Christ. When we approach Mary, we always do so from the vantage point of Christ. The church has always done this. And so, he continues. Speaking of Paul's words in Galatians, he says, for they are words which celebrate together the love of the Father, the mission of the Son, the gift of the Spirit, the role of the woman from whom the Redeemer was born, and our own divine filiation in the mystery of the fullness of time. So here John Paul paints the tapestry for us in his own words. He begins by talking about the love of the Father, then moves to the mission of the Son, and then to the gift of the Spirit including the role of the woman from whom the Redeemer was born into the status of our filiation. So filiation, you know, meaning making us sons. 
and he ties all of it together in the words fullness of time. So the fullness of time, think of it as a kind of archetypal point in history where what Tolkien called the true myth kind of culminates and becomes flesh, really, enters into time. So I'm going to go ahead and continue because he actually talks about the word fullness here. So John Paul says, This fullness indicates the moments fixed from all eternity when the Father sent his Son, quote, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, end quote. So that's from John 3.16. John Paul continues, It denotes the blessed moment when the word that, quote, was with God became flesh and dwelt among us and made himself our brother. So, John Paul continues, It marks the moment when the Holy Spirit, who had already infused the fullness of grace into Mary of Nazareth, formed in her virginal womb the human nature of Christ. So let's stop right there. The claim here is that the Holy Spirit had already infused the fullness of grace into Mary of Nazareth. That statement is merely a reading of the text. It's a straightforward reading of the phrase, Hail, full of grace. So, in other words, the angel Gabriel says, Greetings, or hail, or rejoice, she who has been filled with grace. So, John Paul says, This fullness of time, where the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, marks the moment when the Holy Spirit, who had already infused the fullness of grace into Mary, formed in her virginal womb the human nature of Christ. So, if you read the text, you basically see that Christ came at the fullness of time and was conceived in the womb of a virgin who had been already full of grace. This fullness marks the moment when, with the entrance of the eternal into time, time itself is redeemed, and being filled with the mystery of Christ becomes definitively salvation time. Finally, this fullness designates the hidden beginning of the church's journey. Okay, so what he's saying here is that this fullness of time is full because eternity itself enters time. And so the mystery of the eternal entrance into time, right, the mystery of the incarnation, it sanctifies, it renews time itself. And so all of time becomes salvation time. And so all of creation, right, all of space and all of time is now part of the church. It's incorporated into the church. And so John Paul says that this fullness designates the hidden beginning of the church's journey. So we're talking here about the very center point of the church, the ontological source, which is the incarnation. God made flesh here in Nazareth in the first century. So John Paul says then, in the liturgy, the church salutes Mary of Nazareth as the church's own beginning. For in the event of the Immaculate Conception, the church sees projected and anticipated in her most noble member, the saving grace of Easter. Okay, so John Paul basically says that in, in the first 
premise of this phrase, Mary is the beginning of the church. So this part is, you know, pretty straightforward. If Christ becoming flesh is the ontological source of the church, of the incarnation, of the redemption, of salvation, everything, right? Then the very first one to hear about this plan, to have been addressed about her cooperation in the plan, and to have said yes, is Mary. Therefore, she's the first Christian. Now, the second part that says that um, in the event of the Immaculate Conception, the church sees projected and anticipated in her most noble member, the saving grace of Easter. We'll bracket the Immaculate Conception and come back to that later. But what it does say here is really interesting because it says that in Mary is anticipated the saving grace of Easter. So if you think of it this way, Christ has not yet died, resurrected, and ascended yet. And yet Mary is full of grace. You could say also, for example, that Abraham believed and was justified. Therefore, he received grace as well. Now, all grace comes from Christ. It comes from the Incarnation. Therefore, there is a sense in which grace here is anticipatory, which means that although Christ has not yet died, resurrected, and ascended, the very grace of those mysteries is being applied in time because of the Incarnation. And so Mary is full of grace in an anticipatory fashion. So this is merely an observation of the text. Now, the Immaculate Conception, we'll get to that in a bit. Another aspect I wanted to point out is that it says, In the liturgy, the church salutes Mary of Nazareth, in the beginning of that phrase. Now, it's interesting because the church is saluting Mary. In a sense, it's like the angel Gabriel. He salutes Mary as well. So what we're doing really is following scripture when we salute Mary, Hail Mary. So this is kind of why we pray the Hail Mary um, constantly as Catholics, because we're saluting Mary, the mother of Jesus, just like the angel did as well. Now, that being said, continuing with John Paul's words, he says about the church, and above all, in the incarnation, she encounters Christ and Mary indissolubly joined. He who is the church's Lord and head, and she who, uttering the first fiat of the new covenant, prefigures the church's condition as spouse and mother. So, first of all, it's a beautiful phrase. Now, the word fiat is Latin for let it be done or let it be so. Basically, yes. Her, Mary's yes. So, John Paul, I'll read that phrase again. John Paul says that above all, the church encounters Christ in the incarnation as well as Mary indissolubly joined. Why? Because they share the same flesh, the same bones, right? This is a Genesis imagery. And so the church does not wish to separate Christ from Mary when it comes to the mystery of the incarnation because you can't have one without the other, at least in the way things happen. Obviously, God can do whatever he wants, but he decided to do things this way. And so you cannot separate the woman from the Redeemer in the sense where you can't have one without the other according to how things took place. And so John Paul says that the church 
has a Lord and a head, that's Jesus Christ. And the church is also prefigured in Mary because she's the first Christian, the first to say yes to the new covenant. Now, a covenant is an exchange of persons. It's a oath or a vow that seals a kinship tie. Now, Jesus is the son of Mary, and so there is a genuine kinship tie that is not merely spiritual, but also biological. And so when Mary says yes to God, this begins the church, the new covenant, a new kinship between man and God. And this is basically how we are able, as children of Adam and Eve, which Mary was a child of Eve as well, we are able to now be adopted as sons of God because God became a son of Adam and Eve. And so here we see the beauty of the covenantal logic where there is an indissoluble bond between Christ and Mary. And so the church is both our mother and the spouse of Christ. And so in a very mystical way, Mary is both the spouse of God and the mother of God. And so she really does prefigure and encapsulate as the first Christian, the basically the church. And so we'll often see this as we go through the scriptures that Mary is the prototype or the archetype of the church. So in Revelation 12, when you see her standing crowned with uh, the crown of 12 stars and um, standing on the moon, she basically represents the new Israel, the new church, right? The new daughter Zion, which if you notice, Angel Gabriel says, hail, full of grace, or one way to translate it, rejoice, she who has been graced, right? Rejoice, that, that's from Zephaniah. Rejoice, daughter Zion, for the Lord is in your midst. The angel says, for the Lord is with you. And uh, the Greek could be translated within you. So the parallels here are pretty obvious. This is uh, not uh, mere interpretation. I mean, it is interpretation. I mean, you have to interpret what you're reading, but it's the clear meaning of the text. <laughs> I know that's a, a phrase usually used by um, by specific Reformed doctrines of the, the clarity of Scripture, but I mean, uh, here I, I would argue it's very clear. Okay, so, so she's full of grace because of the retroactive application of Christ's grace, and she basically conceives um, the flesh and bone of the Son of God, the man-God, and so she is the beginning of the new covenant, the origins of the church, of the new creation which is redeemed from sin. So the new creation is one where sin will no longer be a reality. The new creation is the redemption. And she is full of that redemptive grace. So we're starting to see where this is going. Anyway, so now we're in paragraph two of this encyclical. John Paul continues, Strengthened by the presence of Christ, the church journeys through time towards the consummation of the ages and goes to meet the Lord who comes. So here he's, he's playing with the concept of the parousia, in Greek, the coming, the arrival of the Lord in triumph. And he continues, But on this journey, and I wish to make this point straight away, she proceeds along the path already trodden by the Virgin Mary, who advanced in her pilgrimage of faith and loyally persevered in her union with her Son unto the cross. 
Okay, so I'm going to skip forward here and read this next paragraph. Um, it's part of section 3. John Paul says, In fact, even though it is not possible to establish an exact chronological point for identifying the date of Mary's birth, the Church has constantly been aware that Mary appeared on the horizon of salvation history before Christ. It is a fact that when the fullness of time was definitively drawing near, the saving advent of Emmanuel, she who was from eternity destined to be his mother already existed on earth. The fact that she preceded the coming of Christ is reflected every year in the liturgy of Advent. Therefore, if to that ancient historical expectation of the Savior, we compare these years which are bringing us closer to the end of the second millennium after Christ and to the beginning of the third, it becomes fully comprehensible that in this present period we wish to turn in a special way to her, the one who in the night of the Advent expectation began to shine like a true morning star, Stella Matutina in Latin. For just as this star, together with the dawn, precedes the rising of the sun, so Mary, from the time of her immaculate conception, preceded the coming of the Savior, the rising of the Son of Justice in the history of the human race. So what John Paul is doing here is basically he's writing this, of course, before the year 2000, and um, he's commenting on the fact that chronologically the New Covenant begins with Mary, while ontologically it begins with Christ. And he'll go further into this later on. But what we do see in Mary is this fascinating um, relationship between uh, the source of of her of her salvation and the timing of her salvation uh, which also ties into the word that the angel uses to call her which is she who has been in the past perfectly graced and so uh, in greek the word is kikaritomene which um, it's basically a vocative noun which means that uh, it's an appellation it's a title now it's not really a noun actually it's a it's a participle which means it's a um how do we even explain this right uh luke made up this word um it's basically a appellation a calling a title that describes uh something that has been accomplished but that is still going on right and so there's this interesting dynamic where she is full of grace and yet constantly increasing in grace. So that's pretty much what Luke um, had to say about that. So I just, I don't know, I'm going to stop here because I, I don't understand. Like if you read the text closely and if you realize what is going on, if you see the position of Mary in relation to Jesus, um, you just can't help but marvel at what Christ has done in her soul. And so what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read something that St. Thomas Aquinas said about the Blessed Virgin Mary, and I'll conclude this episode with that. Okay, so Thomas Aquinas says, In every genus, the nearer a thing is to the principle, the greater the part which it has in the effect of that principle. Whence Dionysius says, that angels, being nearer to God, have a greater share than men in the effects of the divine goodness. 
Now Christ is the principle of grace, authoritatively as to his Godhead, instrumentally as to his humanity. Whence it is written, quote, Grace and truth come by Jesus Christ. End quote. But the Blessed Virgin Mary was nearest to Christ in his humanity because he received his human nature from her. Therefore, it was due to her to receive a greater fullness of grace than others. Okay, so that's St. Thomas's um, words on the Blessed Virgin. So, I'd like to conclude with this. Um, I know I keep stalling on the Immaculate Conception because I'm, I'm actually working um, on an article. I actually hope that it'll become a book because this has often uh, come up in many, many conversations that I've had with Protestants as an obstacle um, for, I mean, the Catholic faith in general, but specific aspects of the Catholic faith. But also, uh, I've found that many Catholics, uh, although they believe it, uh, the arguments that they give are usually not very good. So one argument is that, well, Mary had to be without sin because Christ was without sin. Um, and, I mean, I don't have to go down that line of thought to to show how it just doesn't work because what about Mary's mother, etc. And all the way back to Eve, wait a minute, original sin. So uh, there's a lot there, you know, what is original sin? Uh, how did people understand conception in the Middle Ages? So there's so much to unpack about the Immaculate Conception and its doctrine and its history. Uh, and its history is so multivalent. It's very, very, very interesting that I'm going to keep that for a separate episode, but it might even turn into a little pamphlet or hopefully maybe one day a book. But it's something that I really want to deliver properly. That being said, this episode is just to emphasize the the magnitude of the grace of Mary. So the fullness of grace within her. So obviously grace comes from Christ. The, that wording was not very helpful. It's not the grace of Mary. It's um, the grace of Christ given to Mary. <laughs> Let's go ahead and make that clear. But um, there really is in her an archetype of the church, which is why the church has always been feminine. It's also why temple imagery is always feminine. Um, and the image of the priest, the one celebrating, the one offering, the one mediating, and as well as the image of God, right, has always been masculine. So God, masculine, creation, feminine, because creation receives life from God. And then we're going back here to the Garden of Eden, the fertility described in Genesis. So there's so much to unpack. I just want to give a little foretaste to the audience. And uh, stay tuned because I will be doing a very long episode just on the Immaculate Conception. And um, it's, I think, a beautiful doctrine that uh, really what it does is that it, it glorifies Christ even more. So to me, it seems that without the Immaculate Conception, there's less um, opportunity, you might say, uh, in, a, in an archetypal manner to show the efficaciousness of Christ's grace, of his redemption, right? If Christ is the perfect redeemer, right, then the work he performs must have a ultimate expression. And that ultimate expression, right, is the one from whom he received his body, his nature, as Thomas Aquinas told us. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there because I could talk about the Blessed Virgin for hours because I absolutely love the church's teachings on her because it's an opportunity to glorify God, to glorify Jesus Christ. So unfortunately, a lot of the tension between Catholics and Protestants, I think, comes from a kind of metaphysics of competition. And so hopefully these will um, 
these will contribute to diffusing that tension so that we can get along and share our mother. <laughs> All right. That being said, we'll see you guys next time. Thank you.